This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for the penultimate episode of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go do that now. I'll be here when you get back. Let's snap, crackle, pop, everybody. Part 7. Three Little Birds When Daisy Zick was murdered in her home in 1963, it sent shockwaves through the Battle Creek community. Things like that didn't happen there. Not back then, at least. Two decades later, locals devoured the murder-for-hire trial of Norman Woodmansey like the plotline of a soap opera, but it was the murders of three young girls over a span of six months in the 1980s that truly traumatized Serial City. The first was the murder of Maggie Hume in 1982. Maggie was born in Dowagiac, a small city in the very southwest corner of Michigan, on April 20, 1962, to Mike and Lori Hume. Three years later, Maggie's only sibling, a brother, John, was born. The Humes were devout Catholics, and they were very active in the church. When Maggie was in middle school, the tight-knit Hume family moved to Battle Creek, where her father took a job as head football coach and athletic director of a private Catholic school, St. Philip's, or St. Phil's for short. Maggie was well-known and well-liked at St. Phil's. She was on the cheerleading squad and a member of the National Honor Society. Her friends described her as fun-loving, outgoing, and stubbornly independent. After high school, Maggie attended Kellogg Community College, which, of course, was named after Will Kellogg, Serial King. His W.K. Kellogg Foundation donated nearly $2 million to build a new, comprehensive campus for the school in the 1950s. Maggie was in the medical receptionist program at KCC. While there, she met and fell in love with fellow student Virgil J. Carter, a star volleyball player one year her junior. The pair began dating in November of 1980, and in April 1982, Jay gave Maggie a promise ring, a thin gold band with a small diamond. By the summer of 1982, Maggie had moved out on her own and was living at the River Apartments in Battle Creek on the Kalamazoo River. She had a roommate, a girl her age by the name of Margaret Van Winkle, and a good job as a receptionist at a local doctor's office. And then on August 18, 1982... When she was 20 years old, red-haired, hazel-eyed Maggie vanished into thin air. 
She was scheduled for the 9 a.m. shift at work that day, but she was a no-call, no-show, which was very unlike her. Her roommate, Margaret, had an appointment at the office that morning, so when she arrived, Maggie's co-workers asked about her. Was she sick? Had something happened? Margaret said that as far as she knew, Maggie wasn't sick and that she wasn't at the apartment that morning when Margaret left. She figured she'd just already left for work. Maggie often spent the night at her boyfriend Jay's house, so Margaret called him to check in, but he hadn't seen her since their date the night before. A little after 11 a.m., Jay arrived at the Hume family home to check on Maggie. She'd only moved out on her own a few months prior, so she often went back for meals or just to hang out. Maggie's 17-year-old brother was the only one there. Jay told John that Maggie was missing, and together they went to St. Phil's, where Coach Hume was working, getting ready for the upcoming school year. Coach Hume gave the boys the spare set of keys to Maggie's apartment and told them to go check things out. At this point, nobody was overly concerned. While it wasn't like Maggie to miss work without calling, there were a million places she could be. She had lots of friends, was very social, and was really taking full advantage of the whole life-on-her-own thing. That lack of concern changed quickly when Maggie's boyfriend and brother arrived at her apartment building. Her dark green AMC Hornet was parked outside, locked up tight, with no sign that Maggie had driven it since the night before. When they entered her apartment, they could hear Maggie's alarm clock going off, so they headed to her bedroom. Her glasses were on the nightstand. Maggie wore big, thick glasses. She was essentially blind without them. She couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom at night without putting them on. So the fact that the glasses were in Maggie's room and she wasn't was a huge red flag. Her bed was a mess. The sheets pulled up from all four corners and twisted up like there had been some sort of struggle. Maggie's purse was gone, but her car keys were on top of her dresser. Her closet door was open, and the floor of the closet was piled with clothes, which Jay said was not unusual. Maggie's laundry routine was similar to that of many 20-year-olds. Dirty clothes piled up on the closet floor until there was nothing left to wear. Maggie's brother John went to check the rest of the apartment, while her boyfriend Jay continued to search the bedroom for clues. When John returned, he found Jay knelt down in the closet, rummaging around inside. John asked what he was doing, and Jay said he was looking through Maggie's shoes, trying to determine if any were missing so that they could figure out what she might have been wearing. The boys returned to St. Phil's and told Coach Hume what they'd found, and together the three men went to the Battle Creek Police Department to file a missing persons report. Due to the coach's standing in the community, Maggie's case became an instant priority. There was no 24, 48, 72-hour waiting period, or she probably just ran away, blasé attitude about her disappearance. Police called Maggie's roommate Margaret at work and arranged to meet her at the apartment on her lunch break right around 1 p.m. Margaret let Officer Bill Brenner and Detective Nick Peston in to look around. She said the only thing she noticed out of place was that the closet doors in the main hall were open and the girls usually kept those closed. The officers did a quick check of the apartment and asked Margaret some questions. As they prepared to leave, Margaret asked them to look around once more, a little more thoroughly. She said, I don't want to open a closet door or find a body under a bed or behind a couch. So the officers looked behind the couches, under the beds, and then Officer Brenner took a closer look inside Maggie's closet. On top of the pile of dirty laundry was a red, white, and blue quilt, not wadded up in a heap like it would be if someone had tossed it in there, but spread out, covering the laundry pile. The officer thought that was a bit odd. 
So he lifted up the corner of the quilt, and under that was a pink and white blanket also spread out. And under that was the body of Maggie Hume. An autopsy would later reveal that Maggie had been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned, although the cause of death was ligature strangulation, so strangulation with an object. The wounds on Maggie's neck indicated that she'd likely been strangled with a belt or something similar. The medical examiner placed her time of death between midnight and 2 a.m., roughly 12 hours before she was found. Detectives immediately took in for questioning Maggie's boyfriend, the last person to see her alive, and her roommate, who slept the night away in her bed, just feet from Maggie's dead body. According to Margaret Van Winkle, she'd last seen Maggie around 6.30 p.m. the night before, on August 17th. Maggie was sitting on her bed reading a magazine when Margaret left for Detroit Metro Airport to pick up her sister, who was flying in from Europe. About 10.15 p.m., Margaret called Maggie to tell her that the flight was delayed, and she likely wouldn't be home until about 4 a.m., so not to be alarmed if she heard noises at that time. Margaret arrived home about 3.45 a.m. The apartment door was locked, double bolted from the inside, and the lights were off. She didn't see anything out of the ordinary, so she went to bed, and she didn't wake up until 8 a.m., over an hour after her alarm clock started going off. Already late for work, she ran into Maggie's room, where the nearest phone was, and found it on the floor, off the hook. She called her boss, and she told her she'd be in as soon as she could, then rushed through her morning routine and out the door, with no clue that Maggie was lying dead in the closet the whole time. Jay Carter, Maggie's boyfriend, worked the late shift at the Battle Creek Beer Company. Records indicated that he clocked out at 9.45 p.m. on August 17th. After work, he went to Maggie's house. The two had sex in the living room, then ate popcorn while they watched MASH and the evening news, and then Jay left around 11.30 or so. During the hour and a half he was there, Maggie got two phone calls. One was from Margaret, who'd called to tell her that she would be home late due to the delayed flight. The other, a short time later, was a bit stranger. Jay claimed that the man on the other end of the phone asked for my baby Maggie and then started talking about the vulgar things he wanted to do to and with Maggie. Upset, she hung up the phone. According to Jay, because in reality, it wasn't a prank call at all. It was Maggie's high school boyfriend, Jim Downey. He was calling to see if Maggie still wanted him to procure beer for the birthday party she was planning for Margaret. Jim later told police that Maggie answered the phone, realized it was him, and then didn't speak, likely because Jay was there. He tried to call her back a few times later that night, but the line was busy. Maggie and Jim had a strong connection. They dated all through high school, during which time Maggie got pregnant and had an abortion. When you go through something that traumatic together, it creates a bond. So even after they broke up, they remained good friends. Uh, there were those who thought it was more than that, though. Even though Jim was engaged and Maggie was promised to Jay, Many people thought the two were still carrying on a romantic relationship in secret, including Jay. When detectives asked Jay who might want to hurt Maggie, Jim Downey was at the top of his list. And he was a suspect at first, but officials ruled him out pretty quickly. They were already focused on someone else, Jay Carter. There were plenty of reasons the police thought the boyfriend did it, and it wasn't just because that's usually the case. Jay was the last person to see Maggie, and his story about that night just didn't add up. He told officials that Maggie had asked him to stay the night. 
So why didn't he? She was alone, her roommate was gone, and she was freaked out by this obscene phone call that Jay said she'd gotten. Why would he leave her there by herself? He said that when he left that night, he heard Maggie lock the door behind him. The deadbolt could only be locked or unlocked from the outside with a key. When Margaret arrived home several hours later, the deadbolt was locked and none of their keys were missing, so it had to have been locked from the inside, like Jay said. Which meant that whoever killed Maggie didn't leave through the front door. They had to have escaped through the sliding door off the second floor balcony. Jay was known to frequently climb up the balcony when he and Maggie were fighting and she wouldn't let him in. Investigators found shoe prints on the utility box below the balcony and grass clippings from the freshly mowed lawn leading from the sliding glass door to Maggie's bedroom, so they were confident that the balcony was the method of entry and exit the killer used, and they knew that Jay was very familiar with using this way to get in and out of the apartment. Additionally, Maggie's brother recounted that he found Jay in Maggie's closet that morning, rummaging around, but he didn't see her body. Investigators said that due to the way the body was positioned, that would have been impossible. While he was being questioned, just hours after being told that his girlfriend had been murdered, Jay was concerned about being late to work, which seemed weird to everyone involved. But things would only get weirder. In the days following Maggie's death, Jay's behavior was erratic at best. He was nervous, fidgety, always coming and going from the Hume home, never staying long. We all process grief differently, so that alone maybe isn't a red flag, but there were other things. Like when he asked one of Maggie's friends out on a date before Maggie's funeral. And how he knew facts about the case that officials hadn't released to anyone, even the Hume family. He knew how the body was positioned and that Maggie had been raped. That information wasn't released until the autopsy report came out in October, two months after Maggie's murder. But Jay knew. His theory, which he shared with everyone, was that Maggie's death was an accident and she'd been killed by someone who cared about her, which was evident by the way her killer had lovingly wrapped her body in blankets. He said that whoever killed her must have thought... If I can't have her, no one can. But the only person who seemed to have that attitude where Maggie was concerned was him. Jay also failed his polygraph test. When he could tell it wasn't going well, he ripped off the probes and stormed out of the police station. He refused to give hair, blood, fingerprint, and saliva samples. Jay was Maggie's boyfriend. He was in her apartment all the time. They just had sex hours before she was killed. He'd already admitted to that. So the presence of his fingerprints and DNA at the crime scene wouldn't have proven anything. But his refusal to provide those things certainly raised eyebrows. Several of Maggie's friends testified that her relationship with Jay was not a good one. They fought all the time. Jay was possessive, jealous, and verbally and mentally abusive. Maggie wanted to break up with him, but she was afraid of what he would do. A faculty member at St. Phil's told police that at a high school volleyball game in early 1982, she happened upon Jay and Maggie out in the hall. Jay was choking Maggie, and when the faculty member broke it up, Jay said, I will choke the life out of her and hide her where no one could find her. There were several witnesses to this incident. So police were pretty confident that Jay was their guy. They were so focused on him, in fact, that they missed some things. Like the day of the murder, when they were questioning Jay, they failed to notice that Maggie's downstairs neighbor, 
Michael Ronning, was loading all of his belongings onto a trailer, getting ready to flee the state. And less than six months later, when another young Battle Creek girl was found murdered, officials failed to make a connection. At least at first. Patty Rosansky was born on May 14, 1965, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When she was 11 years old, her mother passed away, and she was sent to live with her brother John and his wife. They moved to Battle Creek in 1982, right around the time of the Hume murder, and Patty was enrolled at Battle Creek Central High School, which is less than five miles from the apartment building Maggie Hume was killed in. Patty was a good student and was taking vocational classes for medical occupational therapy. The Rosanskis, like the Humes, were members of St. Philip Catholic Church. On the morning of February 3, 1983, 17-year-old Patty was walking to school with friends around 8 a.m. Just before they reached the school, with the building in clear view, Patty's friends stopped to smoke, but Patty kept walking. She never made it to class and was not seen alive again. Two months later, on April 6th, Patty's body was found in a ravine near the Kalamazoo River by two men collecting scrap metal in the woods. Her remains were partially clothed and covered with garbage and leaves. The high school junior had been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death, her skull crushed. One of the investigators assigned to the Rosansky murder was Detective Nick Peston, who'd been inside the Hume apartment when Maggie's body was found. Before police even had any suspects in the Rosansky case, there was another murder. Carrie Lynn Evans was born February 11, 1966, in Anchorage, Alaska, to Kathy and Larry Evans. Carrie Lynn's father was in the Air Force, so the family moved here, there, and everywhere until her parents divorced and she settled with her mother and siblings in Manchester, Michigan, a little village near Ann Arbor, some 70 miles east of Battle Creek. In February 1983, Right around the time Patty Rosansky disappeared, 17-year-old Carrie Lynn moved to Bellevue, a small town about 15 miles north of Battle Creek, to live with her paternal grandparents. She enrolled at Bellevue High School as a junior, where she played the clarinet in the school band. March 13th was a Sunday. Patty Rosansky had been missing for nearly six weeks, and it would be another month before her body was found. Carrie Lynn had stayed the night at a friend's the night before and was walking home down Main Street when she was last spotted. She never returned home and was not seen alive again. Two months after she disappeared, on May 10th, her decomposing body was found by mushroom hunters at the Kellogg Sportsman Club on 14 Mile Road in Battle Creek, just about 12 miles from where Patty Rosansky's body was found. I tried to find a bit of history on how the Kellogg name came to be slapped on the Sportsman Club, but I couldn't find anything. I highly doubt that Dr. Kellogg, the hardcore animal lover who wouldn't so much as swat a bug, would be happy with his name being attached to a hunting club, but who knows. Like Patty, Carrie Lynn was found partially clothed and buried under debris. She'd been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. That's two 17-year-old girls, plucked from the street in broad daylight, six weeks apart, in the same general area. I've seen photos of both Patty and Carrie Lynn. Granted, they were grainy photos from old newspapers, but they did look quite a bit alike. And then, of course, there was Maggie Hume, killed just six months before Patty and Carrie Lynn. There were some differences between her case and the others, to be sure, but there were also quite a few similarities and all three of them were connected in a way that officials would not discover for years. 
Talk began around Battle Creek of satanic cults and sacrifices. One of the suspects in the Rosansky case was a self-proclaimed Satanist, and Carrie Lynn wrote to friends about satanic beliefs and wore a red jacket with 666 printed on the back. Also, this was during the height of satanic panic, so everyone had the Antichrist on the brain. Authorities were overwhelmed. They investigated hundreds of leads, interviewed hundreds of witnesses and potential suspects, but nothing panned out. All three murders remained unsolved. In the summer of 1984, the Silent Observer Program, which was instrumental in solving the murder of Ricky Goddard, offered a $5,000 reward for information on the murder of Patty Rosansky. Within days, several people, most of them related or connected in some way, came forward with tips. They pointed the finger at Thomas Cress, a developmentally impaired 28-year-old divorced father of three who lived just a couple doors down from Patty Rosansky. Prosecutors would later allege that Thomas Cress and Patty were acquaintances, but Cress maintained that he didn't know Patty at all. Cress was a petty thief who liked to drink and smoke weed. He supported himself by delivering newspapers and doing other odd jobs, like collecting damaged boxes of Kellogg's cereal from the production plant and selling them to his neighbors at a discounted price. According to Thomas Cress's accusers, who, again, all knew each other, Cress said that he gave Patty a ride, smoked a joint with her, and then raped and killed her when she refused to have sex with him. Cress was arrested on July 2, 1984, and charged with open murder. He adamantly denied the charges against him. He passed a polygraph test, but investigators claimed that had more to do with his mental capacity, which was said to be that of an eight-year-old, than the actual truth. Cress's trial began in March of 1985. There was no physical evidence at all, not a single bloodstain, fingerprint, or fiber that connected Cress to the crime. So this man, with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old, was able to pull off an unplanned, spur-of-the-moment, brutal, messy murder, but leave no evidence behind. The only evidence was those statements of the six connected witnesses who were paid $5,000 through the Silent Observer Program for their assistance. On June 5, 1985, 29-year-old Thomas Cress was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Patty Rosansky. He maintained his innocence, but his words fell on deaf ears. So that settled things for officials? Kind of. Maggie Hume's boyfriend had killed her, they just had to find that smoking gun in the case. Patty Rosansky's neighbor had killed her, and would spend the rest of his life in prison for the crime. Only the murder of Carrie Lynn Evans remained unsolved, but citizens could rest easy. There was no satanic cult or serial killer on the loose in Battle Creek. However... On September 19, 1986, a letter from the Arkansas State Police was delivered to the Battle Creek Police Department that would turn everyone's worlds upside down. A 29-year-old man by the name of Michael Ronning had been arrested in Jonesboro, Arkansas for the murder of a 19-year-old girl. He'd confessed and told officials that he'd murdered lots of girls in lots of states. Since he was from Battle Creek, Officials in Arkansas thought the Battle Creek PD might want to look into any unsolved cases they had on the books involving murdered girls. Michael Ronning grew up in Battle Creek and had a very troubled history. He liked to drink, fight, and smoke weed. He had a reputation for torturing animals. 
Huge red flag on that one. He dropped out of high school when he was 17 and went to prison for burglary and stealing cars. He once attacked a female relative with a hammer. He had been arrested for attempted rape, armed robbery, indecent exposure, and raping a drugged sex worker, among other things. He also married his cousin. So, huge creep. The first oh crap moment came for Battle Creek detectives when they realized that Michael Ronning was Maggie Hume's downstairs neighbor, the one who'd packed up his belongings and fled the state the day that Maggie was murdered. He lived in the apartment directly below hers with his paraplegic brother and his cousin wife. The next red flag was that, after spending time in Texas and California when two other young pretty girls were murdered under similar circumstances, Michael Ronning returned to Michigan sometime in late 1982 or early 1983 and was living in the Battle Creek area again when Patty Rosansky and Carrie Lynn Evans were killed. In fact, he drove down Main Street in Bellevue, where Carrie Lynn was last seen, to take his sister to school every day, so he knew the area well. When Michael Ronning was questioned, he confessed in detail to the murders of all three girls. The deal was that, for his confession, he would serve out his multiple life sentences in Michigan, where his family still lived. But there was... resistance? While the Battle Creek Police Department believed they'd stumbled upon a serial killer, solved two unsolved cases, and exonerated Thomas Cress, the prosecutor's office disagreed. They labeled Michael Ronning a false confessor, even though he passed a polygraph test and there was circumstantial evidence that tied him to the murders. To be fair, there were problems with his confessions. It looked to be about 50-50 with facts he got right versus facts he got wrong. Those who believed he was guilty argued that he was a drug addict trying to remember the specifics of crimes that had happened years ago, and he'd killed so many girls in so many different states, he had some of the details mixed up. Those who believed he was a false confessor argued that the only facts he got right were those contained within the case files, which Ronning and his lawyer were given access to for some reason, and that the only reason he confessed to the murders in Michigan was so that he wouldn't face the death penalty, as Michigan had abolished it a century and a half earlier, and to be closer to his family, who would now be able to come visit him. One problem investigators faced was that all of the evidence in the Rosansky case had been destroyed, including the clump of hair found in Patty's hand that did not belong to Thomas Cress. According to the prosecutor's office, this was standard procedure. The case had been closed for years, someone was in prison, there was no reason to keep the evidence. But according to the Battle Creek Police Department, prosecutors were aware of their concerns that Michael Ronning may have committed the crime before they destroyed that evidence. This disagreement caused a rift between the prosecutor's office and the police department that lasted decades. In the end, Michael Ronning's confessions were ruled inadmissible, and he was sent back to Arkansas to serve his life sentence for the murder he'd already been convicted of there. But what about Thomas Cress? All along, he'd maintained his innocence and even passed a polygraph. Now another man had confessed to that murder, and he passed a polygraph saying he did it. The case against Cress was weak to begin with, and now this? His attorney appealed, of course, and many years were spent battling back and forth over whether he should be granted a new trial. Michael Ronning told the Los Angeles Times, I feel for this guy that's in prison, but I didn't put him there. 
I have done my best to bring closure to everyone involved in this. In 2010, on her last day in office, Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm commuted Thomas Cress's life sentence to time served. After spending half his life in prison, he was a free man. But there are no winners here. If you believe that Thomas Cress killed Patty Rosansky, then her killer was given unearned freedom and is now out roaming the streets again. If you believe he was wrongfully convicted, then he lost 25 years of his life so that his tweaker neighbors could split a $5,000 reward and the city could quell the public's growing fears. If you believe that Michael Ronning murdered his upstairs neighbor, Maggie Hume, well, he's rotting away in an Arkansas prison for murder anyway. But if you believe that her boyfriend, Jay Carter, was responsible, then he got away with murder. And what about Carrie Lynn Evans? Her murder remains unsolved. Her death seems to have been lost in the pandemonium surrounding the Hume and Rosansky cases. And what about the other girls? Officials believe Michael Rodding may be responsible for as many as 20 to 40 murders around the country. There's certainly a strong case for it. Detectives were able to track his movements during the late 70s and early 80s, and everywhere he went, similar crimes occurred. Pretty young girls vanished in the middle of the day, only to be found in the woods or a ravine or a field somewhere, raped, bludgeoned, strangled, then hidden under a pile of debris. Michael Ronning maintains that he murdered seven women in his heyday, including Maggie, Patty, and Carrie Lynn. But he's only been convicted of one murder. Out of seven. Or twenty. Or forty. Next week is the grand finale of the Serial Killer Chronicles, and I hope you'll all join me. We'll talk about the enduring legacy of those wacky Kellogg's and Serial City's most memorable ghosts. Before that, though, I've got a bit of homework for you. If you haven't seen it, or even if you just haven't seen it recently, I want you guys to go watch the movie The Road to Wellville. You can buy it on Amazon or buy or rent a digital copy through Amazon Prime, Google Play... YouTube, Voodoo, I think it's something like $3 to rent it and $7 to buy a digital copy. It's worth it. Trust me. And then you'll know what I'm talking about next week. My sources for this episode were the book, The Murder of Maggie Hume, Cold Case in Battle Creek by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Blaine Pardo is also the author of the book about Daisy Zick, and I know he's got at least one other Michigan true crime book about a murder in Marshall in the 1960s. I also got information from an article written for the LA Times by Sharon Cohen on January 14th, 2001, and from newspapers.com, Wikipedia, and Find a Grave. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find The Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. And always remember, you're the tops, Corn Pops. Corn Pops.